Welcome back to Enter the Metaverse podcast. Today on our, our podcast, we have our special guest, Terry Tucker, who has been a long, has a long list of experiences in different fields of work. Some examples include hospital administrator, an experienced police officer as a SWAT team hostage negotiator, and Terry is also a cancer survivor. Terry's goal is to teach people how to achieve the uncommon, extraordinary life, while everyone else is just seeming to getting getting by. So thank you, Terry, so much for being on our podcast today. Well, thanks for having me on, Sean. I'm looking to looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, that's exciting. I'm excited because you have a lot, a lot of different uh, areas of fields of of uh, experience, and just tell us a little bit of backstory about yourself. Sure. I uh, I grew up on the south side of Chicago here in the United States. I am the oldest of three boys. You can't tell this from, from looking at me or from my voice, but I'm six foot eight inches tall. And I played college basketball at the, the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina. I was actually the first person in my family to graduate from college. And I remember when I did graduate, you know, I, I moved home to, and I'm really going to date myself now. This was long before the internet was available, but I moved home to find a job. And, you know, I was all set to make my mark on the world with my newly obtained business administration degree. And I look back now and realize how little I knew about business just because I had a degree. Fortunately, I was able to find that first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain in their yep. marketing department. Uh, unfortunately, I ended up living with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my father and my grandmother, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. Uh, professionally, as I said, started out at Wendy's, then I moved to hospital administration, and then I made a major pivot in my life and became a police officer. And, and you mentioned that I was on the SWAT team as a hostage negotiator. After I got out of law enforcement, started my own school security consulting business, coached girls high school basketball, became an author in 2020. But for the last 10 years, I've been dealing with this very rare form of cancer, this rare form of melanoma. And then I guess just finally, my wife and I have been married for 30 years. We have one child, a daughter, who's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is an officer in the new branch of the military here in the United States, the Space Force. The Space Force. Oh, I have a lot of questions about that <laughs> um so oh uh you said you you're still are you still dealing with the cancer i do i i am i i have uh i have tumors in my lungs now that i i get treated for every three weeks i just came off a of treatment last week so i'm kind of in that two-week period where i where i'm healing and my blood counts are, are improving and coming back to normal and things like that and I've been doing this trial drug for two years now. So that's been my regimen for the last two years. Two years. So how long, you said it's 10 years since the, the beginning of the cancer, you've been fighting cancer. So when you first discovered it, what stage were you in? I was in actually stage 3B. I had a, uh, I had a callus that broke open on the bottom of my foot, right below my third toe. And at the time I was coaching basketball. And so I didn't think much of it because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. But after a few weeks of it not healing, I made an appointment 
and went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a little cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to me. It was this little gelatin sack with some white fat in it, no dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But fortunately or unfortunately, he sent it off to pathology to have it looked at. And then two weeks later, I received a call from him. And as I mentioned, he was a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having explaining to me what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming until finally he just laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer. You have a rare form of melanoma, which most people think of as a, a skin disease that's usually attributed to too much exposure to the sun. But yeah. this is a rare form that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. And he recommended I go to MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas to be treated, which I did. And, and they were able to tell me that it was stage 3B because I had one lymph node in my groin that had a microscopic amount of the tumor in it. So uh, been dealing with that, like I said, since 2012. 2012. Now, that has any of the cancer gone away or is it like, different there's different forms now there's not different forms it's still melanoma um so initially i had the tumor removed on the bottom of my foot and i had all the lymph nodes in my groin removed and then i was put on a five-year regimen of a of a drug really to kind of keep the disease from coming back melanoma 10 years ago was pretty much a death sentence they didn't have a whole lot of therapies uh, or drugs to take care of it so they put me on a drug called interferon that I took uh, a weekly injection of. The side effects of the interferon were that it gave me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. So imagine having the flu every week for five years. And that was yeah. not a cure. That was, as my oncologist used to say, we're trying to kick the can down the road. Uh, after five years of that therapy, it became so toxic to my body that I ended up in the intensive care unit with a fever of 108 degrees, which is usually not compatible with being alive. Fortunately, they were able to save my life. Uh, so I had to stop the interferon. And almost immediately, the cancer came back in the exact same spot on my foot where it had presented five years earlier. That necessitated in 2018, the amputation of my left foot. Cancer worked its way up my leg and my shin in 2019, two more surgeries. And then in 2020, an undiagnosed tumor kind of in my ankle area grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. And my only recourse right in the middle of the COVID pandemic was to have my left leg amputated above the knee. And that's when I found out I also had the tumors in my lungs, which I'm being treated for. Man, you been through a lot Terry and I I I my sympathy goes to you because I I thought I had it bad <laughs> and I I I well, amputation I always I'm I'm a, I'm afraid of that for a lot of people who don't exercise much but you I, you seem to be pretty you know in, in uh in, in athletic but uh you just had unfortunate circumstances that that I mean amputation that must be scary to have so you still have like one one leg right okay. correct i have my right leg 
right leg. Okay. Oh, that's that's heavy. That's heavy. To, well, it was heavy certainly imagine. during COVID because my, you know, I mean, literally on the day of surgery, my wife dropped me off at the hospital. I was not allowed to have anyone with me. I was literally the only surgery that day. So if you can imagine a big room, you know, with different bays in it, where normally the bays would be filled with all kinds of people having different surgeries, I was the only person in that bay. And I was the only surgery scheduled for that day. My doctor had to actually get special permission to do the surgery. I mean, my my leg wasn't, it was broken and, and it was broken because of a tumor. It wasn't you know, you couldn't set it and put it in a cast or anything like that. It wasn't going to get any better. So really, we didn't have any choice. And I should have been in the hospital for a week uh, to learn, you know, how to use a walker and a wheelchair and, and how to function with one leg. But my doctor was like, because of COVID, we're going to keep you in for 48 hours. That's the bare minimum. So learn everything you can from your therapist in that 48 hours. And then we're sending you home. Yeah, they like to rush people out right away, especially during COVID. But even now, like COVID's like not, not over, but right. the, the 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 climax of it is basically over because of the vaccinations and stuff like that. Right. And, pe and well, people who don't believe in vaccinations, I I respect both sides of the spectrum. Sure. In my opinion, but I I just don't understand why. I know there are I mean, like you have to see specialists and all this stuff for certain things, but they, instead of telling us you're fine, go home all the time. Don't tell me that. <laughs> tell me, Oh, you should see a specialist. You should see this doc. Like go tell me where to go. Not don't just send me home. Like saying that it's fine. And I might die tomorrow because I went home, but like <laughs> depending on what it is. So <laughs> like I've been sent home so many times from the hospital. It's kind of ridiculous, but, um, yeah, I deal with a lot of health. I'm not gonna really get into my problems unless you want to ask about it. But I do. I'd be I curious. Well, I've been dealing with IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome, syndrome yeah. since uh -huh. 15, for 15 years of my life since I was 15 years old, and it got really, really bad. Um, it it get it like peaks and flows, but like now, now I discovered a a supplement. A few was it last year? I think it was last year, earlier. Earlier in the year last year, um, that uh, basically helped like ninety percent of my symptoms. So like better normal stools and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but then I had then I developed de developed more of a like kind of like a what's the word uh, urinary tract infection. UTI, but it's more okay. it's it's kind of like a UTI, but it's not that because they don't even know what it is so having issues like like similar symptoms to uti okay. so i've been having that recently but i i had surgeries before like a minor surgery but it could like it could be life-threatening um uh wolf parkinson white you know what wpw is no yeah so wolf, wolf parkinson white is where you have you're born with electrical circuit in your heart Okay. So what that is, is where your heart, you know, it's basically the thing that keeps your heart pumping and alive because it's the electricity of your heart. But I was born with two circuits. So my resting heart rate should normally be anywhere from 60 to 80. Normally, that's what they say. But mine was more like 80 to 100, maybe over resting. 
And when I'm active, every time I went to a gym and they would do like a heart rate monitor, like what's wrong with this monitor? Giving them, giving them a monitor, put it on them. And then I'd be like barely working out just on the cardio, on the treadmill or something. And it'd be like 140, 150. But that should be when you're really pushing your limits. And I'm just starting to work out and I'm already that high. So they had to do an ablation on my heart, which is where they go through my groin and my leg and they go through a vein and they zap uh, the circuit. Mm-hmm. So they did that. And of course, I'm still alive. So I'm still here. But it's not like like it's that painful or I don't remember anything. I think it was I they didn't put me under sedation. They said, but I think I was sedated. I don't know. I passed out. So. Kind of conscious uh, yeah. sedation, so, that, so to speak. Yeah, I think so. And then I woke up the next morning and I'm like, or the, I mean, not the next morning. I was still there. I think I woke up a couple hours later and I'm like, oh, they're like, oh, you can go home now. So that was one of my procedures. I had two colonoscopies done. I think that's that's piece of cake to me. Uh, yeah, that's not an issue. I think people are scared of certain things, but when they get it done, then they're like, oh, that wasn't so bad. Yeah, with colonoscopy, it's more the prep than it is the procedure, you know. Yeah. Kind of having to clean yourself out. (laughs) Yeah, that. I mean, the first, I I don't remember it being as bad as the second time. Like, the the first time, I don't remember it. But the second time, like, this is, like, torture. Yeah. (laughs) Just the the prep. But, yeah, that was was different. I have a question about your your injections that you're doing. Now, is it a similar treatment to chemo? No. Uh, so I was on chemo after I had my leg amputated. My The chemo was kind of a bridge to getting on this trial. Uh, it's a trial drug, which means it's not approved here in the United States to be given uh, for any kind of cancer. And what it does is the way cancer proliferates in the body is it secretes a protein, an enzyme, that hides it from your immune system. And what this drug does, excuse me, is basically unmasks the cancer from my immune system. It takes that protein away. Whereas chemotherapy actually goes in and kills the tumor, kills the cell. The problem with chemo is that it's sort of the shotgun approach where it kills all fast growing cells, which are your hair, your, your intestines, your stomach and things like that. And that's why you get you know, you're thrown up. That's why you lose your hair and things like that. This doesn't do any of that. It, it basically just unmasks the cancer from my immune system and allows my immune system to say, oh, wait a minute, that's just like a, a virus or an infection and we need to go deal with it. It has shrunk the tumors in my lungs, but they are still there. So my doctor describes it as I'm in a stable situation. The tumors are not getting any bigger and they're not going anywhere, but they're also not going away. So I'm kind of in that stable area. For me, the drug is very, um, it, it, it makes me throw up. I shake. It's called a riger or rigers. Um, I have a fever. I have a headache and things like that. So I do that every day for a week and then I get two weeks off and then I do it again and I do it again. And, and I started with two other people on this trial. Unfortunately, they both passed away from their disease last year. So I'm kind of the last man standing right now. That That's a lot to, to take in here because first, 
it's an experimental drug, so you don't know, really know what the side effects are going to be. And you're the only one of three that survived. <laughs> That's I mean, it's not it's not funny, but it's it's kind of it's kind of you're really lucky to be to be surviving. I but am. I'm just trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out. Is it better? Is it better than the other options available? Is there any other options available? Not really. Um, as I said, melanoma, you know, is kind of one of those diseases that, you know, 10 years ago, there really wasn't a lot of options. There are a few more options now that are more immune therapy. There are some things that they're uh, discussing right now. Uh, for example, the, you know, one of the big <clears throat> concerns with the COVID vaccine was this MNRA technology. It's like, you know, it's never been used before. It's never been used before in a vaccine. According to my oncologist, he's been using it for 10 years to do a, for example, take my cancer, take a piece of my tumor, sequence it genetically, develop a vaccine specifically for me that probably wouldn't work on you, but is for me, and then use that MNR technology to inject that vaccine into my body. So he's, you know, he said all these people that are you know, saying this is new technology and we don't know what it's going to do to you. He's like, we've been using it for 10 years and nobody's grown a third eye or become sterile or any of the other kind of things that people worry about. So part of it is making sure you have the information, the accurate information to make decisions. And, and I'm just like you. It's like, if you don't want to take it, I get it. That's fine with me. But, you know, for the people that do want to take it, don't don't get upset with them. I mean, I think we all have to make our own medical decisions. It's just like when they wanted to put me on chemotherapy after I had my leg amputated, I, I said to my doctor, is it, is it going to save my life? And he was like, eh, probably not, but it might buy you some more time. And I was eight years into this, this cancer journey. And I kind of looked at him like, well, I, I don't think I want to do that. If the outcome is going to be the same, if I'm going to die, why do I want to go through, you know, losing my hair and being sick and tired and throwing up and all that kind of stuff for the rest of whatever life I have. I would just rather not do that and stay as healthy as I could if the outcome was going to be the same. So we have to make our own decisions based on our situations in life. Yeah, every, I, I believe this is kind of my, my philosophy. is like everybody's on their own life path and we have our own journey and we have our own things we have to discover ourselves. And sometimes people get pushed in different directions and you have to make a choice. And it doesn't mean that's the only crossroad you're going to be at. There's always, right. there's a, there's a billion crossroads in life. Every decision leads to another decision. And it just comes to like, you have to ponder when it comes to that crossroad, you have to really think, meditate on what your decision is going to be. You have to educate yourself on which, which path do I want to take? In the end, you probably end up in the same place, but it might not be as pleasant if you didn't if you didn't actually think about what you're going to do. So that's right. my my philosophy. And um, I think you're now, right. I, I wanted to ask. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say I think you're absolutely right, and I think the most important thing that you said there was you need to educate yourself. You know, people need to get the information and all the information that they possibly can, and then as you say you know, we need to make a decision based on where we are in life and, and you know, what we want to do. And, but, but I see a lot of people, and I'm, I'm much older than you, I've seen a lot of people that sort of just turn their life over to a doctor. And it's like, you know, you manage me, you handle the situation. And I've never been like that. I've always wanted to, 
you know, read and educate myself. Like, what about this? I'm always asking my doctor about things I read about. You know, is, is this an option? Is that an option? And things like that. So I, I like to be involved. You know, I want my life to be shaped by the decisions that I made, not the decisions that I didn't make or the ones that others made for me. I like I like that about about people is when they when they take the their options and they don't li let li uh, hand it over to somebody else because my like my in my family my father he trusts his he puts all his trust in his doctors to make the decisions for him and he 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 also has a stomach condition it's more severe than mine it's uh, irritable or not irritable ulcerative colitis oh, yeah. and he had an ileostomy done mm -hmm. so if he changed his i mean it's hard to say but in my in my opinion if he changed his like eating habits or his his environment and stuff like that maybe he could have prevented doing the surgery okay. and i i really think he could have he could have done that but he puts all his trust in his doctors which i don't do that i learned from his mistakes sure. because I get second opinions if I don't like the way a, a doctor vibes with me because I'm like I'm, I don't trust what they're saying that this is the only option. There's no cure, or whatever. And I th I think there is things that some doctors don't know that other doctors do. Right, and that's for sure true because I I I had a doctor that gave me options for something. I'm not gonna tell you what exactly what it was because I don't remember. And another doctor had like the perfect answer for it. It was like a cream or something for my for my body. And I'm like, this other doctor had no idea. So, and they're the same type of specialist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I want to, I was going to ask you, you, you wrote a book recently. I don't have the book, but it's, what's the name of it again? The book is called Sustainable Excellence, The Ten Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Okay. Now, where, where can I find this book? Is, it on, is, it, is there an audiobook version as well? There is not. An audiobook, you know, part of it is cost, and, and an audiobook runs you, you know, depending on whether you do it yourself or you hire somebody, you know, with a, a much better voice than I have to do it, you know, can run several thousand dollars. So there's a there's an ebook version and then there's a hardcover and a paperback version. And you can get it anywhere. You can get a book online, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Apple iBooks, pretty much anywhere online you get a book, you can get sustainable excellence. Usually I go over people's books before I bring them on the show, but I I, I didn't go over yours. But if you want to just give me a little, a little summary about what it's about, like. Sure, I, I'll kind of give you the backstory about how I came to write it. It, it was really born out of, two conversations that I had. One was with a former player that I had coached that had moved to Colorado with her fiance. And my wife and I had had dinner with them one night. And I remember saying to her after dinner that I was excited that she was living close to me and that I could watch her find and live her purpose. And she got real quiet for a while. And then she looked at me and she said, well, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? said, I have no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about, finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth and then living that reason. So that was one conversation. And then I had a young man on social media who reached out to me and said, you know, what do you think are the most important things I should know to be successful, not just in my job or in business, but to be successful in life? And I didn't want to give him the, you know, 
get up early, work hard, help others. Not that those aren't important. Those are incredibly important. But I wanted to see if maybe I could go a little bit deeper with them. So I spent some time. I used to walk around with a, a pad of paper and a pencil. And, and I, I was always taking notes. And so I kind of had these, these 10 ideas, these 10 thoughts, these 10 principles. And once I had the principles, I sent them to them. And then I kind of stepped back and I was like, well, you know, I got a life story that fits underneath this principle, or I know somebody whose life emulates this principle. So literally during the three month period while I was healing after having my leg amputated, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories and they're real stories about real people underneath each of the principles. And that's how the, the book came to be. Could you give us an example of or one of the principles or even a few if you want to say a couple of them? Sure. Um, each principle is a chapter. So it's always fun for me as an author when somebody reaches out and said, you know, I, I read the book and, you know, this principle resonated with me. And it, it's kind of funny because there's always one of the principles that is sort of the one that really hits the reader. And, and the principles are not in any order. Number one is not any more important than number seven. But the, the one I like, and like I said, I put all 10 of them together, but the one that I like or the one that resonates with me, and I'm, I'll be honest with you, it resonates with me because I've done it and I'm not proud that I've done it, but it's this, it's most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. And I know I've done that. I know I've done that several times in my life where it's like, you know, I want to do this, but it's like, oh, wait a minute. You know, am I smart enough? Do I have enough knowledge? You know, do I have enough experience? What are people going to say if I fail? That's thinking with our fears and our insecurities, not thinking with, yes, this will be a good thing for me. I could learn something out of this. You know, I could get outside my comfort zone and, and do things that are uncomfortable that'll make me a better individual. But so many people I think are held back because they think with their fears and their insecurities. So that's one. And then there, I, I have a chapter on listening and, and, and it's, you know, people are like, well, listening, of course, everybody listens. Like, well, not really. And, and this is more what I learned as part of being part of uh, the, the SWAT negotiating team about listening to understand versus listening to respond. I mean, I think we're all guilty from time to time of, you know, Hurry up, hurry up, Sean. Uh, say what you're going to say because I want to get my two cents in there. That's listening to respond as opposed to, okay, Sean, I, I understand what you're saying. I may agree with you. I may not agree with you, but help me understand where you're coming from. That's listening to understand. And that's what we did as negotiators. That's what we used to try to get people out of bad situations and things like that. So that's another chapter. There's a chapter in there about love. There's a chapter in there about failing the importance of failing, especially when you're young. And so, you know, those are those are three or four of the chapters that are in there that, uh, you know, seem to be the ones that resonate with people. Yeah, uh, the, SW the, SWAT, the SWAT training, uh, listening to respond versus listening to, what's the other one again? Reply. <laughs> reply, Re yes. Listening to understand versus listening, listening to reply. Listening to understand yeah, that's what a lot of people get confused. And even myself, because I would always try to find an answer to to uh, people's problems instead of just listening to g dive deeper into like, what what's causing their issue, really not like, they're not really looking for the answer to their question. 
they're looking for answers to the root cause of their question. If that makes sense. They are. And, and sometimes people aren't just looking for an answer. They're looking for you just to listen, you know, and, and I think a lot of times, at least I, in my life, you know, if I can sort of talk it out, I can come to my own conclusion. I can come to my own answer, but I need somebody to sort of bounce that off of, you know, here, let me just, I'm not looking for you to give me a response. I'm not looking for you to, you know, give me the answer. I'll figure out the answer, but I need to kind of talk this out. Yes. Now, have you had situations where, where it's like gotten really bad and then like, I, I, you don't have to give me exactly the example, but like, uh, like, did you, did you like turn, end up having like some type of miracle situation where you turn that whole situation around? Um, I, I don't know if I would describe it that way. You know, there was a, there was a movie back in the 1990s where Samuel, Samuel L. Jackson played the negotiator. That was the name of the movie. And he was almost a Superman. Like he did everything. And people always ask me if they've seen that movie, is that the way hostage negotiating is on a SWAT team? And my answer is no, it's absolutely not. The way it works is, you know, there's a primary person that is actually negotiating with the person, but there's also another negotiator sitting right next to them, just listening to the dialogue back and forth. And then there's also another group of negotiators that's out doing what I call working the crowd, you know, trying to get information. Why are we here? How did this start? What, what do we need to avoid saying? So as the primary, you may get a note that says, don't talk about his mother, because this all started because he had an argument with his mother. And so it, it's, it's getting intelligence. It's getting information in, in that regard. I can give you two examples. One is, is kind of funny and not anywhere near what normally occurs. And then the other one is probably more normal about how things occur. So the funny one is this, this individual had what well, was drunk. He had uh, barricaded himself in his house with his wife and a gun, and he was threatening to shoot his wife. And I, I got on scene pretty early and I was talking to the uniform officers. I'm like, you know, what's the deal? And they told me, and I said, do you have them on the phone? And I'm like, yeah, we do. So I started, I took over the negotiation and started talking to him. And usually you have to build up trust. I mean, th that, you know, a negotiator working with somebody who's a barricaded subject or somebody who's taken a hostage, that's a relationship. It's a relationship like a parent or a child, like a husband or a wife, like a boss or a subordinate. You have to develop that trust. So you don't ask people to come out and put the gun down very early in it. Sometimes it's hours down the road before you do that. But I just had a feeling about this guy. And so I said to him, what would it take for you to come out? And there was this long pause. And he said, give me a beer. I said, wait a minute. If I gave you a beer, do I have your word? You would put the gun down, let your wife go, and you would come out. He said, do I have your word I could drink? It? I said, yes, you have my word. Do I have the word, your word, that you would you will come out? He said, yeah. So I gave one of the officers $5. I said, go down to the store, buy a beer. The tactical team put it on the front porch. I called them back and I said, your beer's on the front porch, but you don't get it until your wife comes out. You put the gun down and you come out with your hands up. He said, do I still have your word that you that I could drink it? I said, you have my word. 
All of a sudden, the front door flies open. Here comes his wife. Here he comes with his hands up. We handcuff him, let him drink the beer, and off to jail he went. So that was not a, a typical negotiation, but it was kind of a funny one that, that ended <laughs> peacefully. You know, obviously, he went to jail, but for the most part, everybody got out, uh, you know, in one piece. This next story I'm going to tell you is, is kind of an interesting story and not necessarily typical of one. But this individual wanted to commit suicide. And so probably about eight o'clock at night, he started and he cut his wrists and that didn't work for him. And somehow he got the idea that it would be a good idea to turn the gas on his oven and stick his head in the oven. And so he did that. Well, that didn't work either. And then he called one of his relatives and his relative called the police and we end up getting on scene. And it's now, you know, probably two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. And he has a gun. He's going to shoot himself. And I was talking to him and it got to a point where he was like, you know, I'm really tired. I'd like to come out. And I said to him, look, that'd be great. If you come out, I will come down to the scene and we'll talk face to face because we were talking over the phone at the time. And I said, but put the gun down, but bring the phone with you. And that way we can talk. And when you get outside, the tactical officers will tell you what to do. They're going to handcuff you. They're going to put you on the ground. But after that, I'll come down to the scene. He said, great. Well, he ends up hanging up the phone, which is not a big deal because we're conditioned that when a conversation is over, we normally or naturally hang up the phone. But about 20 seconds later, one of the tactical officers comes on the radio and said, we heard a gunshot. And I thought, oh my gosh, you did. He did, shot himself in the head. But he shot himself at such an angle that the bullet went in underneath the skin right here on his temple went around his scalp, around his skull, and came out the other side. Never penetrated his skull, never penetrated his brain. So here's a guy who three times in the course of probably 12 hours had tried to kill himself, and it's like, nope, that, that didn't work. Now, it was incredibly bloody. Anytime there's a head injury, it, it bleeds a lot. But in terms of severity, it was not, was not a very serious wound. They took him to the hospital and got him stitched up and then got him some help. But 90% of the time we were successful at getting people out. But about 10% of the time, the people realized they were probably going back to prison because we went after, you know, somebody call in and say there's a homicide suspect and he's holed up in this apartment. We'd surround the apartment, try to talk him out. Sometimes they were like, look, I know I'm going back to jail and I'm not going to do that. And they chose to end their life. And while that's tragic, and don't get me wrong, don't, don't think I'm callous about this, I never lost any sleep over it. Because one, I knew I did the very best job to try to get them out safely. And two, I knew I worked with good people and we were, we were all doing what we could to help that person. But three, it's their decision. I mean, they're the one with the gun, they're the one that's barricaded. They're really the ones who are gonna decide how this ends. So like I said, 90% of the time we got the people out, but. 10% of the time, the people made the decision to end their life. It's good that you have the mental strength to get over something so dramatic and, and tragic and, and not let, let that attach to you. Because a lot of people could have PTSD, they could have some type of anxiety or stuff where they're like, oh, I, I wish I could have saved this person. But you, you really come to the, the conclusion like that's their decision and that that's truly what it is. It is their decision and you did your best. Like that's another thing. I, I read this book uh, 
it says it, one of the laws in that book was do your best all the time and that's all you can do like basically that's what you do right <laughs> right and and one of the other things we never did with people is we never lied to them you know people would say to us hey i'll come out but you got to promise me i'm not going to go to jail and we would have to say well when you do come out you are going to go to jail i mean you know you've got the swat team surrounding your house i mean obviously you're having the worst day of your life but you know there are several laws you're breaking by what you're doing so you're going to have to go to jail but we would try to deflect the conversation to something that that was more positive and the reason we never lied is because there was a good chance that a year from now or two years from now or five years from now and this happened where we would be back negotiating with that person again and if they feel they lied to you, I mean, just like any relationship you have, if you have a relationship, you know, with your wife and your wife cheats on you, well, I mean, in a way that that's a lie. And so now do you forgive her? You know, a lot of people forgive, but they don't forget. And, and so we knew that there was a good chance we could be negotiating with this person down the road. And so we didn't want to lie to them because we wanted to say them to be always say, yes, you, you were straight with me. You know, you, you didn't tell me any, any lies. And so now okay, now that trust, that developing trust that we need for them is already partially there because they've already said, yeah, you didn't lie to me before. I have no reason to believe you're going to lie to me now. And so it, it made the negotiating go a little bit smoother. The training that you go through as a negotiator, now, do you have to do any type of combat or like, like self-defense training? Because sometimes do you have to, do you get put in situations where, you're like with the person you're negotiating. No, it, it, we were never with that person. And we were, if we were actually on the scene, now there were times where, you know, the, the person we were negotiating with was behind a door and, and the tactical team had what was called ballistic blankets. They, they could put up on the wall that would stop a bullet if, if the person shot through the door or shot through the wall. So we were never alone. So the tactical team, if we were on scene, the tactical team was surrounding us and protecting us. And then if we were, you know, on the phone, maybe a couple blocks away talking to them, we had a we had a, a throw, what we call a throw phone, which probably had two miles of cable on it that they could, th you know, basically throw into the house or throw into the apartment and we could talk to the person. And it was just us and them. There, you couldn't call out on it. You couldn't do anything like that. And what, again, this was a number of years ago when I was negotiating, a lot of people had landlines in their home. And part of what we would do before we started negotiating was to take that landline down. We would call a phone company. You know, we had a relationship with them. There were, we had some technical people that would do that. They would take that line down where nobody could call them and they couldn't call out because we didn't want them calling people you know, sometimes they would call people like their mother and say, you know, hey, mom, you know, you did this to me, bang, and then end their life. And so we didn't want that to happen. So we wanted them just to be dealing with us. So the training was really the same kind of training it was to get on to the tactical team. We had to run, we had to do so many push-ups, we had to do all this kind of stuff. We had to meet with the psychologist, the police psychologist, we had to take tests, you know, our bosses, our former bosses were talked to. Does this person have the temperament to do this job? And then the team decided. It's like, yeah, I don't like that guy. I don't want him on the team. Okay, if one person said that, you were not on the team. You, you would not get on. And so I went through that whole process and was eventually chosen to be part of that. 
And we worked with a psychologist who, you know, we would do different scenarios. That was our training. We, we would do scenarios and then we would debrief. And the psychologist would be like, you know, like you said, did you think about this? Did this person maybe have PTSD? Did this person have schizophrenia and they were off their medication? Was it, you know, so there was a lot of sort of on the job training, on the job learning. And we trained every single month for an entire day where we would go through different scenarios and things like that. And then over time, you, I mean, they didn't just throw you in the seat and say, now you're negotiating. You kind of worked your way up to be the person that was actually talking to the person on the other end. When it comes to negotiations, you say there's only one negotiator at a time. So do they, do they like, there's got to be more than one of you available. So like, I guess it's, it's a scenario based. It's like, this person would probably be fitting because you're more experienced in that area. Was that how it works? Sometimes. Yeah. It, I mean, you know, there would be maybe five of us that would be called, you know, to a scene and there would be one primary and then there'd be a secondary. Like I said, that person would be listening in to what was going on. And then the rest of the team was sort of, you know, work in the crowd. How did we get here? And then over time, you may need more information. So you may have to go, you know, go, you, you may have to drive somewhere else in the city and, and talk to the person's mother or talk, to try to get more information and then radio that back and things like that. So there was, it was definitely a group effort. And it was also kind of exhausting because we kind of had to get down in the mud and down in the weeds with these people. Because uh, think of this as sort of a, a teeter totter or a, a seesaw at the park, which we, you know, we all played on when we were kids. When we started negotiating with the person, their, um, uh, not rational, their, their emotional end was way up in the air. I mean, they were you know, a lot of times agitated. They were just screaming and stuff like that. And their rational side was kind of down on the ground. So over the course of the negotiations, we would ask open-ended questions. You know, uh, why are we here? Why was not a question we asked a lot because why can sort of sound accusatory you know, well, why are you here? Why are we in this situation? We use more like how or what questions. And using how or what questions was also helping the person to help us get them out. So we're helping them to develop the solution of them coming out with us. And then over time, you would get that teeter-totter to where it was sort of equilibrium. And then eventually you'd get it to where their rational end was up in the air and the emotional end was down on the ground because we all make better decisions using our rational brain as opposed to our emotional brain. But somebody might say to you, you know, I am just, I'm pissed off as hell with my mother. And now if you came back and we would parrot that back to them, it's like, so you're incredibly upset with your mother. Now, if we said that, yeah, we matched that emotion with what they said. But if we said something like, um, you know, you seem like you're a little upset. Oh, we, we totally missed that. We totally missed it. They're more than a little upset. They are pissed as heck with their mother. So we had to, we had to basically mirror that emotion with them. And that got kind of exhausting over, you know, three, four, five hours that we're negotiating with the person. Yeah, that, that could go on for a long time. Negotiation. <laughs> Like the, the, sometimes does it last more like if there's if there's a group of people you're negotiating with, can it last like days or like usually I guess like is there like a max cap? I don't know how that works. 
Could it? Yes. Did it usually? No. I mean, we were on average, we were pretty good at what we did. I mean, we had trained with the FBI's hostage negotiation team. We trained with LAPD SWAT and things like that. So we were pretty good keeping on average two to three hours. Now, sometimes it could go four, five, six hours. And there were a lot of times where, you know, you'd spend a couple hours over here talking about something, but the real problem was over here. And those two hours were basically spent getting that person to trust you. You know, and, and the other thing, we, we never gave something without getting something. So somebody may say, you know, I need a cigarette. Like, okay, we'll give you a cigarette. Give us a magazine out of your gun or give it, you know. So we were never going to give you something without getting something in return from you. So, you know, and sometimes it could be, give me a cigarette, give me a bullet. You know, it could be that simple, but usually it was something a little more like, give me a magazine out of your gun or something like that. That's very smart because it, yeah, the, the, the negotiation of give and get, and that like, it plays out really well. Um, it does. Now I was going to ask a question about your daughter. If you wanted to talk about space force, I don't know how classified that is, but very, <laughs> yeah, I think it would be. But like, how do you, is she like in, in like, like, is it like more asked, like outer, outer, is she an outer space astronaut type of thing? Or like more like just protecting the airspace? Um, I guess the best way to describe what she does is she flies satellites. So oh. all the satellites that are around the, the globe, uh, you know, for all kinds. Of, I mean, there, there's a whole group in the Air Force that is dedicated to the whole GPS satellite array that's around the earth. And that's all they do. They, they concentrate on those satellites, make sure they're functioning. If they're not, can they hand it off to another satellite while that one gets fixed and that kind of stuff. So that's one group, but she is more, she deals more with the military satellites. I, I don't know a lot of what she does because quite simply, she cannot tell me what she does. She has one of the highest security clearances in the military. And as a result, she she doesn't tell us a lot or she can't tell us a lot of what she does. Yeah, I, I kind of expected you couldn't really tell me too much about that, but it's very I can tell you if I knew, I just, I just don't know, you know? Yeah, so. yeah. It's very interesting because I didn't even know I would ever meet or know like somebody acquaintance to that type of uh, work. Now, I I used oh, well I kind of am I on my spare time I do do Twitch streaming. Mm -hmm. Now I don't know if the SWAT is all up to date in every single state, but they had some issues before of false people calling and making threats. Now not just related to Twitch, but like that type that type of scenario where you get like false threats, swatting, swat, sw yeah, swatting where people get swatted and they're like, oh, then people could get killed from that because it's a false accusation now yeah yeah people have gotten killed because of how how false the accusations are how, like how's how does the procedure go when when you're you're in that type of situation like when you're like uh getting into a per, like the SWAT team is gonna break down someone's door and before they like they have to have like a like a hesitation before they pull the trigger you know they they do and I mean and and it's not it's not like that it's not like we just show up and kick your door in and you know you know come in with these big guns and all that kind of stuff and start shooting it it, it doesn't work that way 
I mean, it's all about taking your time if you can. And usually, you know, we would get there. I, I never experienced a swatting it, uh, incident when, when I was on, but I'm sure there are procedures in place that, you know, you don't know. I mean, you just get somebody that calls in and says, you know, hey, this guy, you know, I know he's, I, I saw through the window, he's holding his wife, you know, he's got a knife to her throat or something like that. We would not rush in on that. We would not kick in the door. We we would try to make contact with them. I mean, obviously, we'd surround the place. We put the lights on, so I mean, you know, it's the police, and and we would either try to negotiate with them over the phone or even using you know the the PA system in the car. You know, it's like, hi, this is the police. Please come out. And if we ask you to come out, just do it. I mean, we're, we're probably going to handcuff you and all that kind of stuff. But then we'll, you know, you can slow things down. You can slow the situation down. And it's like, okay, what's going on here? You know, we got a report that your husband was holding a knife to your, your throat. No, no, that didn't happen. And then you, you, you sort of, then it's turned over to detectives to say, okay, where did this come from? Where did we get this call? You know, can we trace it back? Why did you, you know, try to find the individual? Why did you say that? You don't even live next door to them. How would you know that? Things like that. And, you know, if it's found out you made a, a false 911 report, there's all kinds of crimes that you can be charged with that definitely will ruin your day. So, like I said, we just don't go kicking the door in just because somebody said, you know, somebody's holding a knife to somebody's throat. So, But it has happened in the past where people have got swatted and they have because maybe they're they got headphones on, they can't hear people being called from outside so they have to break the door down or something like that but i guess there of course there's a level of training and you have to like take your time like you said you have to check every area in the scenario be like this doesn't seem like a threat so far so maybe but you always have to keep your wits about you too you do and and, and a lot of the you know early on a lot of the issues were you know it's the middle of the night somebody calls it in the swat team responds you know you're asleep and all of a sudden you're woken up, you hear something, you grab your gun, you go outside and you end up getting shot because you've got a gun. And, you know, I mean, we all know how we are when we wake up from a dead sleep, you know, we're, we're foggy, we don't hear things, things are, you know, and you end up getting shot. So, you know, shooting somebody is, you know, from law enforcement's perspective, the last thing you want to do. So could you use a beanbag round, you know, could you use, uh, you know, less lethal, a taser or something like that? I mean, obviously, you got to get a little bit closer and, and, and things. But, you know, they have shields that are bulletproof. They have, like I say, ballistic blankets and things like that that they can use to protect themselves. And so, it, it, you know, they don't just like, oh, the guy's got a gun. I'm going to, you know, blow him away kind of thing. Is, is he displaying it in a threatening manner? I mean, is he, you know, pull, you know pointing it at you? And most people... When they, even when they come out of a deep sleep, if you walk outside and the red and blue lights are going, they're not going to, they're like, well, wait a minute, maybe I, you know, mm, okay. And people are giving them commands to do things. You, again, we're trying to de-escalate. We're not trying to hurt somebody. We're not trying to kill somebody. We're trying to get people out as safely as we possibly can. Yeah, I think having a good attitude towards law enforcement, well, most can agree with this, at least I think is is going to help you in the long run when you when you're getting when you're having accusations just keep a good attitude and you'll 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 get out there faster than 
than not, not having a gamepad added. To- Just do what we ask you to do. And and if we're wrong, we'll apologize or we should apologize. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a scenario. We were looking for a particular car one night and these two officers stopped a car that was similar to what we were looking for. And it was, it was for a, a robbery. So it was a pretty serious crime with a gun. But the people in the car were not the people we were looking for. But they wanted to know, and and you would want to know. I would want to. Why did you? Why did you stop me? You know what? What did I do? Do I have a tail light out? You know, is my registration expired? Why are you stopping me? And I think it's incumbent upon law enforcement, upon us to to explain to people. It's like, look, we were looking for a car that was similar to yours. You are not the people we're looking for. Thank you very much for your cooperation. You're free to go. Have a safe night. Well, people understand that. Oh, okay. My car matches the description of somebody you're looking for. You just didn't stop me because I'm black or I'm brown or I'm a woman or I'm in the wrong neighborhood or whatever thing like that. There really was a reason that we were stopped. And we would, I think, be better off, be better served in law enforcement if we'd spend more time explaining to people why we did what we did. Now, you know, it may be a dynamic situation and you can't explain. You've got to put them on the ground at gunpoint and put them in handcuffs. But once that's done, once everything is slowed down, now you can say, hey, the reason we did this is because your car matches the description. It was three people in a car. There's three people in your car. They had a gun. They shot at somebody. We brought you out at gunpoint. It is not you. I mean, those handcuffs come off just as fast as they go on, and we can apologize to people. But sometimes we have to do what we have to do for our safety and the safety of other people. You may not like it. You may not be like being put on the ground and being handcuffed. But like I said, we can take those off and explain to you why we did it and apologize and send you on your way. That that's that's good. Yeah. <laughs> that you get to the the negotiating negotiating with law enforcement sure now now i wanted to get i was thinking of something and i totally forgot but what about your other experiences besides besides swat let's get in let's let's change the subject now besides swat besides what we talked about what other experience do you have well, I, I, yeah, I know you're going to laugh at this, but I, I, in, within law enforcement, I was um, I was an undercover narcotics investigator, undercover drug uh, person. So I I bought drugs from people. I sat on houses, you know, developed a case, got a search warrant, had SWAT kick in the door, and and stuff like that. That was something I did. Like I said, in my you know when I started out, I started out in business. Uh, was at Wendy's and in, in the fast food industry. Uh, for a number of years, kind of in their heyday, um, switched to hospital administration, did that for a number of years, had my own school security consulting business where I worked with private independent schools around the United States to improve their physical security. Uh, you know, like we talked about me becoming an author, you know, I was a girls basketball coach. That was something that was interesting. I, you know, I mentioned that I'm six foot eight and played basketball in college. I have a brother who's six foot seven, who was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame's baseball team. Another brother who's six foot six, who was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers and the National Basketball Association. And then my dad was six foot five. So, you know, I used to sort of joke that if you sat behind our family in church growing up, there wasn't a prayers chance you were going to see anything that was going on, you know, in front of you. But our five foot eight inch mother was the boss. And you know, it's kind of funny when I went to high, my high school in Chicago was 
an all-male, all-boys Catholic high school. When I went to college, it was an all-male environment. So I, I think it was kind of God's way of having a sense of humor that, you know, when my wife and I had a child, it was a daughter. I remember, you know, going to the doctor with my wife. He's like, do you want to know what the sex of the baby is? Like, oh, absolutely. It's like, well, you should buy pink. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Don't know anything about raising a girl. Please, you know, keep it in there till it's done. I have no idea. But, you know, like everything else, there's no manual that comes with raising a child. You do the best you can and, and, and hopefully give them the best life that you're capable of giving them. I am not nowhere near ready to having a child. Can you guess how old I am? I, I, I'm, I look way younger than I am. I'll I'll say you're in your 30s somewhere. Just 30, just 30. Just 30. Okay. Yes. So that was close. Good guess. Good guess. <clears throat> That's close. You but do yeah, look I, younger than 30, though. Yeah, I, I have that effect on on I guess it's my genetics. But your genetics is pretty crazy. Everybody's over six foot, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Six eight, six seven, six six, six five. We were all within an in an inch of each other. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. I wish I was that tall and I maybe maybe it'd be easier to find a girlfriend or something like that, but I don't know. <laughs> hey, but, it's your personality. It's not your height. Yeah, well that's what they say until until like, oh, I thought you'd be taller. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> I'm still a nice guy. You should date me, you know, go out with me, see what this goes. Yeah. Hopefully that works out. Now coming coming to the your books you're an author how many books have you written just one it's the only book i've published i i, I wrote a book um i wrote a series of letters when i was a police officer to our daughter just on the off chance that something would happen to me and i wouldn't be around you know to watch her grow up that we're just kind of you know here's what my life was about here are the things that i believe in here are things that i want to pass on to you that you know in that job you know i i i buried too many cops, you know, that, that I had worked with and, and that. And so, um, you know, I, I did that, but it, it's, and it, it's about 400 pages of, of letters to her. I'm going to give that to her and let her decide what she wants to do with that. I, I wrote about my cancer experience, the first about eight, five to eight years of it. Uh, but I never published that. So yeah, the, the book I have now is pretty much the first one that I've actually published. And that's the book behind you there that I'm seeing. Correct. Sustainable Excellence. Okay. I will get that book eventually. Probably, probably this month. Uh, <laughs> yes. Now, I'm just going to go over my notes here because... Embrace the long pauses. Um, hey, silence was something we used as negotiators. Yes, we it's good. It's good. <laughs> It is. Yeah, I think I, I covered basically all the questions I was going to ask. But is there anything else you want to talk about that I haven't talked about? No, I, I think we're, you know, I think we did a good job of covering a lot of ground in, you know, a, a good amount of time. All right. Thank you so much, Ter Terry Tucker, for being on this episode of Enter the Metaverse. If you want to stick around for a few minutes after this. Uh, where where can people find you? Remind everybody where they can find your book or find you or any social media you have. Sure. So I, I have a blog every day. I put up a thought for the day. And with that thought usually comes a question about maybe how you could apply the thought into your life. 
On Mondays, I put up the Monday morning motivational message. And all of that is at motivationalcheck.com. I also have recommendations for videos to watch, other books to read. Uh, you can leave me a message there. It also has all my links, all my social media links. So motivationalcheck.com will get you to me. All right. I will put that in the show notes as well. This will be available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify with video, uh, Google Podcasts, mostly any podcast place you'll find it. Anchor is my main, my main podcast source. You can find us at the-meta-verse.com and also the underscore meta underscore verse on Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, I would ask you more questions, but I'm kind of overwhelmed with how much we talked about already. But thanks. I would like to have you on again eventually, possibly sure. if you're welcome, if you if you write another book even or even before that. So I would love to. Be, it was a great time talking with you, Sean. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And also maybe next time you can have my, my, have my co-host on and he probably have a whole bunch of questions for you too. Sure. But yeah, I'm going to end the recording and thanks for listening.